Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Hey everyone, welcome to the 72nd episode, or excuse me, 77th episode of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Matt Jessup and I, Mark McEvely, bring you everything you need to know from the past week in our world of financial markets and financial planning. So good morning to you, Matt. Good morning, Mark. We're almost to the end of the year, ready to turn the calendar, baby. Yeah, Christmas on Friday, and then uh, one more week after that of trading, and then we're, we're done for 2020, which I'm sure a lot of people are happy about. I'm sure they are. Just hope it's not a situation that everyone, when you know, when we turn the chapter from 2019 to 2020, everyone was like, "Yeah, bring on 2020," and now everyone's like, "Expletive, expletive, 2020." Which it could happen. Is sad, but yeah, I'm optimistic though. All right, I'll be the same. Very. Um, so we'll start off uh, to review the markets uh, for the month and the year as we always do. And these numbers are as of the market close on December 21st, and the data is from Coifin. S&P 500 index up 0.89% for the month and up 14.48% for the year. The Dow up 1.32% for the month and up 6.06% for the year. The NASDAQ up 3.24% for the month and up over 42% for the year. The IWM ETF that tracks the Russell 2000 index is up 7.2% for the month and 19.53% for the year. The Vanguard International ETF X United States is up 1.42% for the month and 8.44% for the year. Three-month T-bill currently yielding 0.09%. The two-year Treasury yield sitting at 0.12%. And the 10-year Treasury yielding 0.93%. So the biggest piece of news um, over the weekend, Matt, was the stimulus package that got passed um, on Sunday, I believe, or Sunday or Monday. Uh, it's about a $900 billion package. Um, and again, we can dive into the details of this in another episode since we have plenty uh, of things to talk about today. And just before we started recording here, I think it might be a good idea just to dedicate a podcast to it. Me and you have time to dig through it and just pick out what's pertinent to people. Yeah, we'll talk about it next week. I think um, it'll be good. There is some skepticism over it, though, and I, and I can see why. You know, this is over a 5,000-page bill that got passed, uh, finalized, and voted on the next day. So no one had any time to read this thing. So, you know, all of the, the Congress uh, men and women. This really just grinds my gears, man. Yeah, I, I don't know what's going on there. but And, and this was from Twitter, um, from The Real Fly. So I don't know. I haven't dug into this yet. I don't know how accurate this is. But here's a couple things that are in this bill. Um, domestic funding. The Kennedy Center got over $26 million in this bill. I want to know what their endowment is. Right. And I don't... How does that... What is that? How is that relevant? How does that help people with COVID? How, how is the it relevant? Smithsonian got a billion dollars. A billion dollars. National Art Gallery, $154 million. Uh, Woodrow Wilson Center got $14 million. And foreign countries got billions of dollars. Egypt got over $1 billion. Uh, Asia, over $1 billion. Um, Pakistan, $25 million. Uh, Israel, $500 million. 
and the American people, the citizens, get $600 per person. I, it so, just really just gets me fired up. Yeah, it's and again, that's just initially what I saw on some of these these things. But, um, you know, we'll dig into it in a little bit and provide some more uh, insight maybe next week. But it's uh, on, on the first look at it, it looks disappointing to me. Absolutely. So, I mean, the amount of pork that's in this thing, it yeah, just feels that way. Add anything to that? I mean, I saw things in there that was just absolutely insane that had nothing to do with COVID. And again, this is a very quick glance, Mm -hmm. and I'm just, I'm very much against it. Mm -hmm. Now, positives. You know, it looks like there will be another potential round of PPP loans, and I think there's a calculation that's involved that revenues had to drop by 25% over a certain period of time, and it's also eligible for nonprofits. I know there's a lot of struggling nonprofits out there. And so um, I'm encouraged by that. I think there's 268 billion that's for PPP loans. I think I read, but you and I'll dive into the details. But that mm-hmm. is a silver lining. Yeah, yeah, and I hope there's there's a lot more than that of that. Then yeah, it's early, but that, that's the, that's the one I saw. People picking out. Um, COVID vaccines are getting rolled out across the U.S., so um, that is providing some optimism for people that we're getting closer and closer towards a normal environment. And the other big piece of news from last week is the Federal Reserve met last week, and um, they still are committed to supporting the economy with their current programs until we reach uh, full employment again. So um, that's encouraging from the Fed. Uh, So moving on to tweets and research from the week that caught our eyes. The first one was a quote from William O'Neill. Um, so he's pretty famous in the investment industry um, for his investment style. And here is a quote. Contrary to the conventional wisdom, the best stocks rarely sell at low PEs. Just as the best ball players make the highest <laughs> salaries, the better companies sell at higher PEs. So I just think this is a good way to look at it because you can't just arbitrarily pick out a ratio or a metric like P.E. And if a company's trading at 100 times uh, earnings, you can't arbitrarily just say this company is overvalued, I think, which a lot of people do because it's a very popular ratio that people swear by. My opinion, I don't like it. I don't think it holds a lot of weight anymore. Uh, Maybe it did back in the day uh, a couple decades ago, but right now I don't think it does. So not in the world of disruptors. Right. Right. Exactly. You know, where in the past people were not used to companies garnering so much market share so fast. I'm telling you, that stuff did not happen in the 80s and 90s like it's happening now. Right. I mean, people did not go into industries that were dominated by a couple of players and just absolutely dismantle it. Right. I mean, it's, this is a different situation in the fact that these companies are disrupt like they haven't in the past. Right. Yeah. And so I want to be careful. I don't fall into the trap of it's different this time. But I will say the fact that these companies are able to disrupt at such a fast pace is why one could assign, in theory, a higher price to earnings multiple, which negates the historical thought process of constantly comparing to what the overall valuation of the market is. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So I like this. And, you know, just with other metrics as well, you're going to see people quoting other metrics that, you know, say the world is ending and that type of thing. Yeah, so I mean, it's so different just... from, you know, energy stocks dominating a big part of the S&P 500 sector index. And now it's not the case anymore. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Yeah. So I thought that was interesting. Uh, the next one was kind of a funny one that I saw from Grayson Rose, and he is with StockCharts.com. Uh, and this was back on December 16th. He tweeted a chart of the performance of Chipotle and Pfizer for 2020 as of December 16th. I know where this is going because on the cusp, they had a vaccine, Mark. Yeah. So he tweeted, burritos are outperforming life-changing record-breaking global economy saving vaccines by 56.22% in 2020. So as of December 16th, Grayson said that Chipotle was up 67.32% year to date, while Pfizer was only up 7.1% year to date. I take this as a very good learning lesson for listeners. I think it does too. Right? Yeah. Because at the end of the day, just because Pfizer comes out with the vaccine or XYZ company does, doesn't mean that there is a name that is is doing better that is more commonplace. Mm -hmm. I mean, look at Chipotle talking about disruptors earlier. You know, you had fast food dominated for decades by McDonald's, Burger King, Taco Bell, right? And then all of a sudden, all you have all these new players the last 15, 20 years. Chick-fil-A's blowing up, right? You know, you got names like Chipotle. Now, we're not advocating buy or sell decisions on any of these names that we're mentioning, but it just goes to know that, you know, just because Pfizer's in the news and they have a vaccine doesn't necessarily correlate to stock performance. Yeah, it doesn't translate to higher stock prices just because they came out with with a vaccine, there you go. essentially. Yep. So so I thought that that was That's a great example. That was really interesting. Um, the next thing that I had was a excerpt from the book, How I Invest My Money by Josh Brown and Brian Portnoy. Um, and this excerpt that I'm about to read was written by Morgan Housel, and we've quoted his work before on the podcast. Um, and he, you know, there's a chapter in here where he describes his personal finances. So uh, Josh and Brian um, created a book where a lot of popular financial media people describe how they invest their own money, um, which I'm reading right now, which I find is really interesting because, you know, a lot of the people out there say you should ask your advisor how they're investing their money and if it's similar to how they're investing their client money. So, yep. and it's never really been, you know, talked about on the mainstream news outlets like CNBC that those things never get discussed. So um, it's interesting. Some of the people that we have quoted on this, uh, this podcast before Ashby Daniels has a, has a piece in here about that Morgan Housel, like I said, I'm about to read an excerpt from his chapter. Um, you know, there, there's a bunch of good people in here that, you know, they, they lay out how they invest their personal finances. Okay. Let's do this. So this one's from uh, Morgan Housel, like I said, and this talks about um, the difference between, you know, owning your home outright or uh, financing it with, with a mortgage. So he says, we're so far committed to the independence camp that we've done things that make little sense on paper. We own our house without a mortgage, which is the worst financial decision we've ever made, but the best money decision we've ever made. Mortgage interest rates were absurdly low when we bought our house. Any rational advisor would recommend taking advantage of cheap money and investing extra savings in higher return assets like stocks. But our goal isn't to be coldly rational, just psychologically reasonable. The independent feeling I get from owning our house outright far exceeds the known financial gain I'd get from leveraging our assets with a cheap mortgage. Eliminating a monthly payment feels better than maximizing the long-term value of our assets. It makes me feel independent. So I just thought this was this was really interesting because at the same time, I'm a 
numbers guy. So I fall into the camp. I like to do things based on what the math says. But also I understand that dealing with your personal finances is a very emotional decision, right? Mm -hmm. And not every single decision that you have to make has to be uh, the best decision financially when it comes down to the numbers. Um, For example, your house, I think, is viewed as an investment or an asset to most people. What people need to consider is that you live there every single day and you need to enjoy it. So, you know, um, I think this was really good for Morgan because it allows people to see that, you know, not every single financial decision needs to be made according to the math. Absolutely. And, you know, it's okay uh, that, you know, good is good enough. It doesn't have to be perfect. Um, And if it makes you sleep better at night that you own your house outright, then I think that's something that you should take into consideration and you should do. Like we always talk, you know, for uh, an emergency savings fund, you know, typically advisors say you should have three to six months of living expenses. But as you point out, there's usually an emotional number in someone's head that they always want to have at the bank at all times that makes them hit the hit, have their head hit the pillow at night and they're comfortable knowing they have that much amount at the bank. If owning your house outright with a low interest rate environment makes you emotionally and psychologically better and makes you feel more comfortable, then I think people should do that. Um, so again, not everything has to be, uh, you know, to a T with making decisions financially uh, from a numbers standpoint. Uh, the emotional side, I think, is just as important. You said it perfectly. I was going to use the example about the uh, arbitrary emotional uh, amount of money to have in savings as your emergency fund. You said it perfectly there. The only thing I'll add to this would be this point. It's in regards to what I call the goal post moving. So let's go back to the analogy of the emotional based savings rate number or what you should have in savings. A lot of times people might arbitrarily sit there and say, well, that number for me is $20,000. I need to have in savings. Head hits the pillow at night. I'm comfortable with that. Problem is, is all of a sudden the savings might get to 25 because they weren't spending money. And guess what becomes the new psychological savings number? 25,000. The goalpost continues to move. Mm -hmm. And so I just encourage people that when they do make more emotional based decisions in regards to finance, that in essence, you set the rule and you keep it there. Doesn't mean it can't be reevaluated, but I think it's a lot easier for the goalposts to move in relation to emotional based financial decisions. Right. Is that a good yeah. Way of saying yeah. It? Exactly. And <clears throat> as long as the goalposts goalposts are not moving on other things, right? So exactly. And if you read Morgan's whole <clears throat> whole chapter, he goes into the fact of you know he financially him his wife and his family are fine because of the other things they are doing that they can own their house outright and it won't have that big of an impact on their finances that's right so it long- frees up that cash flow to right. do something else with right exactly so um yeah it's a good book people should check it out if, if they if they get the chance so that's a good one mark um i'll turn it over to you here uh for a little bit all right i got um i got two Um, The first one is a tweet from Arthur Hill. Uh, He's talking about the CNN fear and greed index. Now, Mark, as a reminder for listeners, we've quoted the CNN fear and greed index in the past. Specifically, I brought it up a couple of times during the COVID sell off um, in February and March this past year for listeners um, at that time. 
So Arthur Hill's tweet was in regards to, and I'll quote it, he goes, here's some back of the envelope analysis using the CNN fear and greed index. He goes on to say extreme fear signals, which is a number less than 20. I should pause. Hundreds, the highest it can go. Zero is the lowest on this index. Zero would indicate absolutely extreme pessimism and 100 would be extreme optimism, mm -hmm. okay? So he says extreme fear signals of less than 20 was a timely sell back in October of 2018, but a good buy signal in August of 2019. It says the S&P 500 index moved higher for several weeks after extreme greed signals of higher than 80 back in October and December of 2019. And he ends it by saying, sometimes greed is good. Mm -hmm. So, the point that I think I'd like to make with this chart is that just because the index goes below 20 or higher than 80 should not be a single point buy or sell decision. Is that a good way of saying it, Mark? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I think that sometimes these um, specific um, indexes people will hold as one of their main buy or sell decisions in that obviously has been proven with this tweet mm -hmm. is, is not accurate, right? Right. For me, I'm going to add a little bit of color for listeners. I take more weight in this index when it is at a lower rate, right? Because to me, I think of this as a little bit more as a contrarian indicator. I'm not saying I put massive weight into it, but mm -hmm. it's something I watch. I'm less, uh, I put less weight into it, Mark, when it's on the higher end of the greed phase because of the way this specific index is, is made up. So I just want to throw that out there that yeah. I put more weight when it's a little bit lower. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. I got an interesting one. This is going to be kind of off the wall, but I saw this yesterday and I have to share it. There was a tweet by a gentleman named Reed Wilson. Okay. He's a correspondent at the Hill. Okay. Okay. He sat there and says, and he, he tweeted a picture of this and it looks very disturbing. McDonald's is testing a new sandwich in China made of spam and crushed Oreos topped with mayonnaise. I want you to take that in for a second. So McDonald's is testing a new sandwich in China made of spam, crushed Oreos, and topped with mayo. Would you eat it? No. How much would I have to pay you to eat it? It'd be a lot of money. You know what? This should go on. This needs to go on Facebook. We need to have a vote here. How much we have to pay somebody to consume this? That'd be a lot of money. It's. I mean, okay. So I mean, twenty twenty is. <laughs> That's where I'm going with it's this. Crazy, but everything just seems really backwards right now. And not to like completely, you know, make this a serious conversation, but I mean, just think about it. You know, we're at a time where I think we can all agree that everyone especially I think in America, we need to be healthier and, you know, uh, to not fall prey to COVID right now. I think that there's a lot of data out there that, you know, if you are healthier and you live a healthier life that, you know, you have an easier time fighting COVID and or any illness at the same time, McDonald's is doing really well right now because a lot of people are strapped with cash and McDonald's is cheap and they're eating crappy food. So those two things run contra to each other. Yep. And then you have McDonald's coming out with whatever um, that is. You it's can't even call that a sandwich. Spam crushed Oreo. It's topped with mayo. It's just baffling to me that you know, this stuff is still happening. Um, 
I think they should just launch it in the U.S. and just see what happens. I'm sure it'd get a lot of traction. I'm People sh- just want to say that they had, had it. it. But I, I wouldn't be first in line. I was taken back. <laughs> um, I'm going to have to think about my number. Like what you'd have to pay me to consume that. Yeah, it'd be be up there for me. I got to think about that. Yeah. Um, I got one last one I'm just going to throw in there real quick. Okay. There was a uh, tweet that I saw uh, just this morning. Okay. And it cites a, um, a piece of research. Uh, the source was Bloomberg. And it looks at, and I'll quote, the ICI money market mutual fund assets versus the S&P 500. And on this chart, it talks about like how much cash came out of the market during the um, COVID sell-off of February and March. This tweet says, quote, here are the facts. $1.1 trillion came out of the markets and into cash in March due to the virus. This says only $400 billion has gone back, and you can see what happens to stocks as investors come back. So in essence, you know, people are indicating, I saw some tweets recently about, well, there is no more cash left on the sidelines because the stock market's at a 52-week high mark. And I'm seeing the data saying that that is a false statement. Mm-hmm. I've seen that on M2 Money Supply. I've now seen this on ICI Money Market Mutual Fund Assets uh, data. And so I just want to remind listeners that there's still a lot of money on the sidelines right now. And I think that as you have more and more um, political certainty, say after the January 5th runoff election, you have the Fed dictating interest rates the next two years. You know, this could be one of the big tailwinds for the market that Wall Street, I don't think, is paying enough attention to. Yeah, I agree. I agree with that. I don't, you know, for people that are saying there's not there's not cash on the sidelines, I don't know where they're getting, where that, they're data. getting that data from. But um, no, I agree with you there. I'll send it back to you, sir. Um, okay, so the financial planning topic of the week uh, was an article written uh, by Nick Maguli on his blog uh, of dollars and data. And this was titled, How to Save for a Big Purchase. And I think there is a big dilemma that a lot of investors are faced with when saving for a down payment on a house or, um, you know, like an engagement ring or a new car. And, um, you know, obviously we want to maximize our returns whenever we can, but I think there's a fine line between maximizing your return and having the money available at least over the short term, um, for example, two years. So I just kind of wanted to dig into this with you, Matt, and see what Nick had to say on that. I'm excited about this one. Um, So he says, I asked a few advisors at my firm and they all responded in the same way. Cash, cash, cash. When it comes to saving for a big ticket item, cash is the safest way to get there. Period. Full stop. Yes, inflation is going to cost you 2 to 3% a year while you save. However, given that you are only saving for a short period of time, then the impact will be small. For example, if you needed to save up 24000 for a down payment on a house and you could afford to save 1000 a month, it would take you 24 months or two years to get there without inflation. However, with 2% annual inflation, it's going to take you an extra month of saving $1,000 to reach your goal. That means that you would have to save $25,000 nominal dollars to get $24,000 of real purchasing power thanks to inflation. Yes, this isn't ideal, but it's a small price to pay for the guarantee that you will have your money when you need it. In the grand scheme of things, the extra money isn't a significant cost. This is why cash is most secure fire or most surefire, lowest risk way to save for a big upcoming purchase. 
And I definitely agree with this, Matt. I think that if you're saving for a large purchase, like a down payment on a house, you need to make sure that money's there. So when you need it in two years, um, you know, you can't afford to put that money into stocks because what if you found your dream house in March of 2020, right? And you wouldn't have had that money to buy your new house. So you never know, you know, when the market is going to pull back 20 or 30%. And I think that if someone is saving for this large of a purchase, then you shouldn't be messing around with that money in the stock market for something under two years. What are your thoughts on that? I differ slightly. Here's a strategy that I like to employ. So listeners, I prefer to take what I call a project fund. The problem I have with singular um, savings for, say, the down payment of a house, down payment of a car, etc., is that those timelines, as you've alluded to, can change. They could either be, you know, be sooner or pushed out. And you miss out, I think, on a lot of opportunity in investing. So what I would rather see is if you have multiple projects that you're saving for, I'd rather you create a single project account that you just save into and that you invest knowing you'll have different timetables of when you'll need withdrawals. And that way you're not playing the game of, well, if, if I need it in three years, then I can invest part of it. But if I had this projects in say two and a half years, I'm just going to keep it in cash. I mean, trying to draw a line in the sand arbitrarily, if it's two years or if it's three or it's four to decide if I'm going to keep it in cash or invest it, I'd rather you commingle if you have multiple projects, just in a single investment account, invest it. And that way, when you need the money for whenever the project comes up, you take it out. That's my two cents. That's how I would prefer to do it mm -hmm. is to have a commingled project account rather than singular siloed um, savings. Okay. Yeah. Is that so the way of communicating it? Yeah. Yeah. I think we, we just differ slightly on this one, but, uh, and I think both ways are, are to get to where you want to be. I think both ways would be fine for the most part. Sure. I'm just, and I know that it's, this is the tail risk, right? Of, you know, if you, if you find the house of your dreams and you have like a market meltdown of 07 and 08, then you don't have that money to buy that That's house. That's a good point. Um, good point. So, but, you know, if you are in a position where, <clears throat> you know, you just want to have a fund, like you said, for improvements or whatever, and you're not specifically saving towards a certain goal that you're saying in two years I absolutely I want, need this I need this money because I want this house on this street in this city then I think that, that that's I see you're coming from with that, that right makes sense. and that's a, that's yeah. a fine way to go about it but I think sure. if people have a very specific goal and a timeline that they want to be that it's hard in a new hard house fact. Like, yeah for example say you know someone has uh you know a three-year-old and then uh the wife is pregnant with twin boys Okay. Right. And they and they they're out of space. Right. They have a 900 square foot apartment. They need a new place. Right. So they know they need to be in a new place by a certain date to give more room for the. Family, I would not put right? that money in the market. Right. Right. Exactly. So I think that's that's where, where I'm coming from. But I think, you know, both are viable options. Sure. Sure. Um, so uh, he talks about um, investing in bonds um, relative than just keeping the money in cash, Matt. And um to test this theory, uh, he, he runs the same calculation, $1,000 a month saving into a uh, three to seven year treasury bond ETF instead of just putting it into a savings account. Um, and he has this chart on here that, again, this article will be linked on our, our show notes if you go to com and hover over the podcast tab. Um, 
you'll see the show notes tab there and this article is linked there. He, he posted a chart that, you know, again, even with bonds, they still can have sell offs, you know, when you need that money. So back in 2009, from their peak, this uh, treasury bond ETF that he's quoting in here was down 7%. Um, in 2019, it was down seven and a half percent. And that doesn't seem like a lot. But again, what in the if, bond world. Yeah. In the bond world, it is. And again, what if you that is when you needed that money? That's just a risk that I'm not willing to take. Um, so I think it's pretty clear that, you know, at, at least from the the um, the examples that I gave that for a large purchase in two years or less, if you're certain you know, on a certain house, then it makes sense to, to keep it in cash, at least relative to bonds, because I don't think it gives you much upside. It's not worth the additional risk. Right, exactly. But what if you need to save beyond two years? Oh, here we go. Right. So, you know, for example, he says, if you wanted to save 60000 by saving $1,000 a month in cash, we would expect it to take 60 months or five years in a world with no inflation. However, when you actually perform this exercise going back to 1926, 50% of the time it would take you 61 to 66 months, uh, for example, one to six months late to reach your goal, and 15% of the time it would take you 72 months or more, 12 plus months late. Because of inflation. Because of inflation. Which is the silent killer. Right. And on average, holding cash takes 67 months to reach the $60,000 goal. Why? Because the longer time horizon increases the impact of inflation of your purchasing power. We talked about this on episode 76, Matt. So if people uh, haven't listened already and want to learn more about inflation, we talked about that last week. Thank you for the reminder. Um, so uh, compare this to investing in bonds where it only takes 60 months on average to reach your $60,000 goal. Since bonds provide some yield, they can offset the impact of inflation to preserve your purchasing power. You know, um, I think like you kind of mentioned, there's a break-even point between taking the risk of being invested in cash, bonds, or stocks in your time horizon. Yep. And, you know, um, Nick came to the conclusion in this article, I won't read too much more from it, but he said... That if you're saving for something that will take less than three years, use cash. Otherwise, put your savings in bonds or, you know, I think combination of thereof. Yeah, a combination thereof um, or, you know, a combination of a stock and bond portfolio that you can add to and, you know, draw off of when um, you need to make improvement to a house or you need to put a down payment on a home. Yeah, I mean, this also makes me think, Mark, in regards to what do you do with an emergency fund, right? And, you know, we, we talk a lot of times to clients about, you know, how much money they want to keep at the bank. And we talk about what's their emotional number, right? The, one of the issues I have for clients that have what I call higher psychological savings numbers in their minds is that, you know, you could have $50,000 sitting in cash for not just one, two, three years, but five, 10, 15. And it goes back to what you mentioned earlier, you know, at certain point, there's an emotional decision that outweighs the financial, mm-hmm. right? And at what point do you sit there and say, I should probably invest part of that, right? right? And it goes back to if the client deems that the emotional comfort that that provides usually outweighs the dollars and cents side of it, right? Right. Mm-hmm. And so we just have to acknowledge that 
And I think it's something that just needs to be respected. Yeah, absolutely. And I want to be very clear that, you know, uh, having an emergency fund, that's very different than having a uh, a house goals fund or a house improvement fund. Yes, it is. Funds. Very different. Because I you apologize. don't want to use the... Um, the emergency fund to, to, to do the put home a down payment rental. on a new house or a home rental because yeah. then what if the car breaks down? Exactly. What if you have a health care expense that, you know, if you don't have a high deductible health plan, then you don't have an HSA to help pay for that. So you got to keep those things separate. And I just wanted to, to point that out for people. Nope, that's good. So this week, we're happy to have four questions from, from listeners keep this them, week. Keep them coming, so, listeners. Um, so we'll just kind of roll through these really quick. Uh, the first one is from Nancy, and Nancy says, will we be required to take a required minimum distribution in 2021? Uh, this is a great question, and it stems from that required minimum distributions were essentially canceled for 2020 due to COVID. So they didn't want to force people to take money out of their pre-tax retirement accounts to add more income if they don't need it to pay more tax. And what age does that trigger at? So right now it is 72, um, but there have been talks to move that even higher. So remember, uh, pre-2020, this was 70 and a half was the age for required minimum distributions to take place. That got moved up to 72 years old and uh, with the SECURE Act. And now there's talk of even moving that as high as 75 years old. Um, but as of right now, in 2021, people will be, again, required to take a RMD, a required minimum distribution, um, if you are over the age of 72. Correct. Okay. So at least right now, that could change and it could get canceled again uh, if you know something happens that brings on COVID again. My two cents is if you are, are listening to this podcast and you are one that is over 72 and you don't necessarily need the money to pay your bills, your living expenses... I would tell you to wait till later in the year to determine if it's required or not, Mm -hmm. because just like in 2020, that didn't come out until after the beginning of the year. And people that took their RMDs earlier in the year weren't able to put it back in. So I would tell you, if you don't need it to pay your bills, wait till later in 2021 to determine if it's actually required. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. Is that that a good way of saying it? Yeah, because you have until literally December 31st of that year to take your RMD. Don't wait until the last minute. Yeah, I wouldn't wait until the last minute, but but you you can you can wait at least wait till summer. Yeah, my my two cents. Yep. Uh, Second question was from Tim, and he says, are Roth IRAs a good idea? And at what age does it make sense? Oh, I wish Aaron was here for that one. I know. So in Aaron's place, I'll start, Matt, and then you can kind of add on to this. But I think Roth IRAs are a phenomenal idea. Why? Because it gives you access to tax-free retirement income when you decide to call it quits from your job. And, you know, typically the theory is that it's better for younger people to contribute to Roth IRAs just because, as a reminder, contributions to Roth IRAs are after-tax money. So that money's already been taxed. So the theory is that if you're younger, you're in a lower tax bracket. So why not contribute or money and tax that money up front at a lower rate than, you know, 25 years down the road when you are in a higher tax bracket. So usually it makes sense for people that have a long time horizon till retirement to use Roth IRAs if they know that, you know, they're expecting to be in a higher income level, um, you know, later in life or in retirement, because then you have access to this tax-free money. Um, 
I'm still of a proponent that it doesn't necessarily matter what age you are to contribute to a Roth, because I think just like you diversify your investments, being able to have different tax buckets in retirement to help manage that tax liability is really, really important. So I think um, that if you're eligible for a Roth IRA, you know, it's really, really good to have no matter who you are. My, my two cents, I don't disagree with what you're saying. Uh, the only, uh, um, I guess, area where I do differ has, has to do with at what age does it make sense? You know, when I was getting really started in the business and, you know, Roths became a popular thing in the late 90s, that ultimately, if you're within 10 years of retirement or needing the money, if you run some back of the envelope math, tends to not make sense depending upon your tax bracket being yeah, doing a, a pre-tax contribution. Mm -hmm. So my only kind of asterisk to this is at what age does it make sense? I would just say if you're within 10 years of retirement, I, you know, what I would do in our practice is I'd tap someone like Aaron to run that calculation for the client to see if it makes sense or not, mm -hmm. right? Pre-tax or after-tax contributions. But um, what I will say is our Roth IRA is a good idea. Absolutely. And to prove that point, I think it'll eventually occur where they don't allow Roth IRA contributions anymore. It's too good of a deal long term. Mm -hmm. I'm just gonna throw that out there. Yeah. I think what'll happen is, is they'll grandfather money that's in Roth they don't allow them anymore. Yeah, because at some point, they're going to figure out the tax revenue that they're giving up on that money down the road is tremendous with compounding, right? So my two cents, do it while you can get them open now, people going to get <laughs> my opinion, it's going to go away at some point. Yeah. Interesting take. Guess we'll see if that comes to be true. That's just my two cents. <laughs> um, next question is a question from, from Matt, and we just have to be a little careful with this one. So Matt asks, is it possible to purchase Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies for an IRA account? Um, so a very short, quick answer on this. Yes, it's possible to do, Matt, in a self-directed IRA, and there's a lot of platforms that do allow for this. Um, we don't do it here. Um, we can't do it here. Um, but it, yes, to answer your question directly, it is possible, and I know people who have done it. Wow. Essentially. Wow. So don't want to get in trouble with uh, compliance over this one. Can I take money out of my IRA and go to the casino? You could. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, no, actually, let's get into that a little bit, because I think I, I, I see where you're coming from on that. But I also kind of um, I want to be careful with my words here. I don't want to say I like it, but I think having different uh, assets is a good thing. And in my opinion, Bitcoin is no different. But I think you just have to go into it with the assumption that, you know, this thing is very, very volatile. There you go. And it hit all time highs, I think, uh, on Thanksgiving, something around there. And, and then the, next day the following was... day, it was down $2,000. So people have to understand that that's, that can happen. Um, but I do think from, you know, a diversification standpoint, if you have money in there, say, you know, half a percent of, of your net worth, I don't think it's uh, a horrible idea. Now, just like with any other investment, putting 50, 60, 70% of, of your investable assets, I don't think that's a good idea with anything. So you, you, you said it perfectly <clears throat> for me. It's, it's position sizing. Mm -hmm. Okay. You know, there could be an extremely speculative small cap name that, you know, is the equivalent 
of going to the casino and putting money on the roulette table of red or black. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when you size that position, you're thinking, I'm either going to hit an absolute grand slam on this or it's going to be a strikeout. Yeah. Right. And as long as you position the size of the trade appropriately, that's a different story. Right. And it could be Bitcoin. It could be XYZ investment, et cetera. Position sizing is key. Right. Exactly. Yeah. It's just the same as if, uh, you know, if you have a friend or a family friend come to you that's starting starting a business and you, you know, you give them money to help, you know, get them off the ground. It's the same thing. You know, size the position accordingly. Yeah. Yeah, precisely. So um, I'll let you take this one first, Matt, because you have very strong opinions on on these. But uh, (laughs) Matt also asks, will SPACs be a continued growing trend? And if so, do you see a problem in investing in these companies or specific questions you want to have a company address before investing? All right. These are blank check investments. And let me explain what that means. There is a manager. Okay, a money manager that will raise money in a shell company that's a blank check company. And the goal of these SPACs is to go out there and take that money that they've collected from investors. They want to buy an existing private company to fast track it and take it public to the market. Okay, Mm -hmm. that's the the goal of these SPACs. The problem I have with it is you are writing a blank check to this manager for you have no idea how that money is going to be spent, where they're going to use it. In my opinion, there's so much speculation. I, they've raised over $80 billion this year in SPACs, blank check companies that just hasn't been used yet. And my two cents is this is falling into the extremely speculative area, and I'm not a fan of it because I like predictability I like longer term focused investing, and this just seems that the attention span and the time horizon has become so short term, people are trying to hit grand slams, and there's going to be a lot of strikeouts, and I think the positioning of people investing in these types of things, they're just not really looking at what the potential downside could be. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then again, SPAC stands for Special Purpose Acquisition Company, and I think that people just need to be aware that... This could be a uh, hero or zero type of type of investment. So you're essentially placing a bet on the manager of the SPAC that they're going to acquire a private company that is going to be super, super successful. Yeah. And I think what, here's what's going to happen. And this is my personal speculation. These SPACs have become ego vehicles for these managers. Right. So in, in, in Wall Street, you know, all of a sudden your competitor created a SPAC. Well, I have to create a SPAC. And so all of a sudden it becomes ego driven. And as more and more of these companies get taken public via SPACs, it's going to put more pressure on the people that haven't spent their check. And I think it could lead to some rushed decisions, rushed poor decisions because of the ego side of it. And that's, I think, a big reason these SPACs are there. One, you know, it's we're in an environment where it's easy for these guys and gals to raise money. And then you have the ego factor of having your name associated with a SPAC. And then all of a sudden, once you see people start spending this money, I think there's going to be some poor decisions as people rush to prove to their shareholders that I'm going to make a good decision next. Mm-hmm. And I just, it's not my thing. Yeah. Yeah. And <clears throat> two, I, I just like simplicity. You know, I'm a stocks and bonds guy. 
Like I like, I like the simplicity of it because people can understand it and investors can get behind it because they can understand it. But this is, you know, even though this does deal with, you know, publicly traded stocks, it's a lot more difficult for people to understand how this stuff works essentially. Yep. Um, so I think people just need to, you know, consider that, um, before they do invest in something like this. And I also think that if you are going to, that you need to do your own research. Yeah. We're making general statements on the overall sector of this, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, I would be the, if I were to do this, I would do my own research. I'd look at the success of, you know, the fund manager, if they have a track record of doing this type of stuff, have they failed before, have they been successful before, you know, that type of thing. Um, so I think this is one that it takes a lot of time to, to research this stuff and it's not, is simple of, you know, pressing a buy or a sell button. Yeah, I mean, in my opinion, to put a bow on it, the predictability level um, of a SPAT compared to a traditional stock that we would purchase for ourselves or a client, it's completely different. Well, yeah, because you know with, you know, a traditional publicly traded stock, you know you know what Apple is, you know what you they know do. You know what they do. Exactly. You know, but with, uh, you know, these SPACs or blank check companies, you know, they IPO and there's nothing there except money. That's right. Yeah. Yep. So just got to be careful with it, I think. Um, covered a lot in that in that episode. We were fired up today. Yeah, we, we got a lot done, which I, I'm happy for. Um, so we will leave it here um, for the second to last trading week of the year. And uh, we'll be back next week. And like I said, I think I'm pretty set on digging into the the stimulus bill that came out to see what people need to know because I don't think uh, anyone is going to go out and read, you know, 5500 pages worth of stuff if people in Congress can't even read it. So Yep. Yep. I think it'd be good for us to summarize it. So we'll uh pull some data out of there and um hopefully go over that next week. Send your questions, listeners. Yeah. Yeah, again, keep keep the questions coming um because if you have them, it's most likely that other, other people, people do have too them as well. Um, so, uh, we hope that everyone has a great holiday season and we will be back with you, uh, next week for the 78th episode of the independent advisors podcast. Uh, we hope you all have a great rest of the week and a fun and safe holiday season. Enjoy the holiday weekend, everyone. We'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors Podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. And also check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. Here you'll find links to every episode of the Independent Advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words, questions, and topics in the subject line to mark at jessupwealthmanagement.com, and we'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties, which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. 
past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved. Advisory services offered through Commonwealth Financial Network, a registered investment advisor.